coming up on Venture Voice. When founders build companies, they, they look back in their career. And sometimes if it's they're very early in their career, they look back at college or school and try to bring that to their cultures. You know, I think you see Google, right? Google was a college culture. The founders there were getting PhDs and that shaped the culture. So I think I'm no different. I think I try to combine the best parts of Salesforce and the best parts of PeopleSoft and throw in a little bit of my personality on the side and let the chips fall where they fall. This is Greg Gallant. Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm so excited today to interview Todd McKinnon. Todd is the founder and CEO of Okta, a SaaS company, a software company worth over $25 billion. It's a publicly traded company. You may never have heard of Okta, but thousands of companies rely on it to enable their employees to sign in with the same username and password to a whole bunch of different software platforms. Imagine not needing to remember 30 different username and passwords and just having one to be able to get into all your software. That's what Okta does for companies, and it solves a big problem. Being a founder, a scrappy entrepreneur, is totally different than being a CEO. It's a challenge I've dealt with for the past 10 years, growing my own company that I co-founded from zero to about 100 employees. Now, Todd's gone a lot further than me, and that's why I wanted to learn from him. Todd founded Okta and scaled it to such a huge size. He's been the CEO the entire time. Very few people make it that long. Really wanted to learn the secret to his success. And before Okta, Todd was one of the first engineers at Salesforce and the first person to lead the Salesforce engineering team. Scaled it from just over a dozen people to hundreds. Now, Salesforce is a legend in the software industry now. Todd also shares what it was like to have a front row seat to the early days of SaaS software, software as a service, and what it was like to work with Mark Benioff back before Mark Benioff was a multi-billionaire. Let's listen in and hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Todd, welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm excited to be here. I really want to talk about Okta, but before I do, I really want to set the stage and kind of dig into your uh, your earlier career. So tell me about joining PeopleSoft in 1995. I mean, I remember PeopleSoft was my first and only job. I remember having to log into PeopleSoft to see what deductions came out of my paycheck. What was that like to join in, in 95? PeopleSoft was an amazing company. Little known fact, I wrote the code that logged you into that PeopleSoft system. <laughs> Wow. So I've used your products already. <laughs> That's right. You write some code, you know, in 1996 or 97, and it sticks around in the world for a long time. It's amazing how software is. PeopleSoft was an amazing company. You know, it was my first full-time professional job after college. I think you're pretty impressionable at that time in your career. And so it made a big impression on me, both from just the power of technology and what it could do for our customers. And I think the biggest thing about PeopleSoft at the time was it had a very distinct culture and the culture was all around the people and the employees and making the employees feel like it was their company. I think a lot of people think that PeopleSoft was called that because it was HR software, but the internal joke was that it was because, you know, it was the people of the company, right? It was our company and we felt super motivated to build it and be successful. What was your first job there? So when I joined there, it, the company had about a thousand employees. The company had several groups that built the applications, the HR, the financials, and so forth. But the platform that PeopleSoft was built on was a group called PeopleTools. It basically built the development environment and the programming languages that all the applications were built on. And usually they didn't hire college grads, but during the interview process, they recruited me off of school campus at, in San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly, where I was getting my master's in computer science. And I talked myself into getting a group with the PeopleTools group. They first wanted me to build applications that uh, join the business uh, functionality, financial applications, but I talked them into join the kind of the, what you call the kernel team, the platform team, the people tools team. And I talked my way in there and first couple of projects were some pretty basic things that no one else on the team would want to do. But I kind of started there and worked my way into engineering and built a bunch of the capabilities, including the, the login flow, did a bunch of other stuff there over many years. Uh, so re really set the stage for your, your later career. 
but a lot of people don't realize it too, because we'll get to this, I'm sure in a bit, but one of the ways I knew that I had a sense that Okta would be a good market and a good product was building that security technology at PeopleSoft and the login and the single sign on there and integrating that system with directory services. We built this product that was uh, basically connected the HR system to the to LDAP directories, which is a certain kind of directory in IT. And that product was super successful, especially compared to how much we focused relatively little on it. It was super successful. So I got an early glimpse into the power of good technology around identity and security. And then that was still way before you started Okta. After PeopleSoft, you went to join Salesforce, which at the time in 2003 was still uh, a much smaller company than we know of Salesforce now. You know, what led to that? And what was your thinking joining compared to PeopleSoft? So when I joined Salesforce, it was 2003. So I was at PeopleSoft quite a long time, about eight years. And it was still, you know, a couple of years after the dot-com bust. So 2000, everything was super riding high with the internet. And then 2001, a lot of those companies didn't survive. And, and you know, stock market went down. And it was kind of a question of which companies were going to survive. And Salesforce was actually, you know, had a few hundred employees when I joined. And it was really one of the survivors of the dot-com bust. A lot of people, you know, they used to have these billboards all over San Francisco, these kind of brash billboards that were a few years old from the dot-com days. I remember one of them said, there's a little kid that was writing on the chalkboard a hundred times. He said, you know, I will not give Siebel my lunch money, right? It was kind of this guerrilla <laughs> marketing that Salesforce was uh, famous for during the dot-com. But then it'd been a couple of years and it wasn't quite clear to everyone if Salesforce was going to survive, it was, were they going to be just a, you know, like pets.com, go out of business, or were they going to? So I started talking to Salesforce because my, I had a great run at PeopleSoft, but they took my project I was working on at the time and put it on hold because PeopleSoft bought another company called JD Edwards. And I was clear I was going to spend a couple of years just doing acquisition integration. So I went and talked to Salesforce and, you know, the first meeting, it was like, are you guys going to survive? I mean, are, how are you doing? Are you dot-com bust? And is anyone really going to want to? rent software, this software as a service thing, is it really going to survive? I mean, it's customer data. Are you really going to want to trust your customer data to some small dot-com company? Through the course of those interviews, it became very clear to me that you know the company not only was surviving, but it was really thriving. In fact, I learned that when I interviewed there, they only had about 13 engineers. 13 engineers. Wow. And all those other hundreds of people were sales or back office or whatever else. Exactly. Yeah. Mostly salespeople. It was powerful because they had a very simple product that was very differentiated from everything in the market because you just logged into it on the internet. You didn't have to worry about doing the servers or managing it. Very, very distinct from all the other software at the time. And they were just selling it as fast as possible. They had these couple hundred salespeople out there selling it. And you know, it's interesting. This is a trend in my career. So I talked to them and they originally wanted me to just come be an engineer. They're like, you know, we're not really sure about this. And I was at the time advanced into a management role at PeopleSoft. So I wanted to be a leader and a manager at Salesforce. But Salesforce is like, we're not really sure about this management thing. Just come join us being an engineer. There's only 13 engineers. You can maybe learn the code and learn the respect of the team. And then maybe we'll promote you in, in some time in the future. And I was able to talk my way into getting the management job. So after a bunch of conversations and one of the co-founders, his name is Parker Harris, he was the guy who hired me at Salesforce. I convinced him that, yeah, you should. You can't keep 13 engineers. You're going to have to scale this engineering team. So hire me and I'll help you scale this thing out to many hundreds of people that you're going to need for the ambitions of the company over the next five, 10 years to keep up with the sales growth. Yeah, maybe you should have been in sales for them instead. You uh, Sounds like you did a good job. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's a whole other level, being in sales for Salesforce. So <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm up for that. Tell me about that too. You know, it's something, uh, you know, I, I see it in my company. We're always struggling with thinking like how many engineers do we need to accomplish what we want to build and what's the importance of growing the engineering team? How did that discussion go? And how do you think about, you know, with salespeople, you know, like, hey, we, we want to sell a million more this year. So let's hire five more salespeople. How do you know, like, hey, how many engineers do we need to build the suite of software that we want? Yeah, that is... It's a hard problem. Like, how many engineers do you need? What's the right level of productivity? How productive are your engineers? You know, people always want to quantify it. My advice is hire people with experience managing and leading that have an open mind on how to continuously improve things and don't try to measure it. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but all of these efforts to quantify 
innovation and software development and engineering are, I think, at best flawed, <laughs> at worst downright harmful. And so I think you just got to embrace this mindset of continuous improvement, iterate, look at what you're doing, how you can improve it and resist the temptation to quantify it. But that being said, I remember when I started at Salesforce, the, one of the first things I did was I read all the documentation. So I spent a couple of weeks reading, you know, cover to cover all the documentation. And the first thing that struck me was how simple the products were. The products, the functionality was very basic. And, you know, my instinct at the time was coming from traditional enterprise software was that that was a problem that you didn't want to have a basic product. You wanted to have a full feature product that had every bell and whistle and that could slice bread and make you an omelet and do everything possible. Right. But that was the magic of Salesforce at the time. And it was also the magic of cloud computing, because it not only removed the burden of all the building out and maintaining and managing the software, but it also meant that you didn't have to spend time writing code that ran on different operating systems and different databases and stuff. And the software was easier to use and simpler. And that became really a reset for the whole industry, a reset that made people really second guess all of the overly complex systems that they had and think about what would it be like if we just focus on the basics? Hey, our engineers would probably be way more productive. Our quality would be better. Our users would be happier. And I think that as much as anything has been the key to the success of the cloud over the last decade or so. That's fascinating. What was it like to uh, come in with 13 engineers? So it's probably, I guess, big enough that you yourself weren't writing code or or I don't know, you know, were you writing code? And then how do you figure out where to spend your time at a startup scaling up at that size? So when I started there, so I convinced my boss to give me the management job, but I showed up on my first day and we had a conversation and he said to me, well, you know, I've been thinking about it and I want you to just spend some time writing code. Just learn the product, um, learn the code base, and we'll kind of tell everyone that you're the manager later. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, okay, well, I can prove myself. I'm good. I remember I, I had a feature to implement. It was converting one of the areas of the application that did support center automation and converting it to use the more modern internal framework they had. So it was a lot of conversion of code and pretty straightforward to do. So I did that and I read the documentation. I remember I counted the lines of code. I, I mean, I didn't count them manually, but I used a tool to count the lines of code. And Salesforce at the time had, it was about a million lines of Java and about a million lines of Oracle PL SQL. It's actually relatively small considering the business was growing very fast and you know we were going to go public in a year. And I kind of got my hand around all the functionality and the code base. And it was probably a month or so, six weeks. And I was like, is my boss ever going to tell these people that I'm the boss? <laughs> is it ever going to happen? And I wasn't sure it was going to happen. But then finally, one day, we had an all team meeting. And um, I wasn't sure what we were going to talk about. But Parker, I remember at the meeting, he said, all right, everyone, I have an announcement to make. And this is a team that had been together for four or five years and super close, super small, you know, weren't sure they needed a manager, were somewhat probably skeptical of me. And he said, I just want to let everyone know that Todd's the new leader of engineering. <laughs> no, they all looked at me and he's like, over to you. Let's talk about a moment in your career where you have to stand up and say something smart and not look like you're overwhelmed. But luckily, I was able to do that. And from there, it was off to the races. Yeah, I'll never forget that. Did you feel like you then had to spend weeks earning their trust or was it like right away you took the reins and were able to run? I think Parker, you know, very, very smart. I think he knew that I had already done enough kind of to get a foundation of trust. So I think one of the things I realized after that meeting that I was, that I did have that foundation and I was more comfortable and more confident in myself there. Looking back on it, it was it's like kind of a funny story to tell, but it was a really good way to come in because credibility, foundation of trust, and then able to build up over time, um, adding value and the team could clearly see that, you know, I was going to contribute something and not just be some management overhead. There's got to be like a term for that management move, like the stealth top level or... I'll call it the scary switcheroo. That's my name for hey, it. It's the scary switcheroo. <laughs> and we'll talk more when we get to Okta, but uh, have you ever used that technique yourself to bring a manager in, in your own business? It's probably because of that, but I never have. I never have. <laughs> that was a unique situation. I will say this, that situation definitely had a lot to do with me talking my, my way into that job during the interview process. And then that was kind of Parker's way of easing me into it. So I haven't done that exactly like that. But what I have done is just hiring people without a direct fit of what they're going to do and then spend the first couple of months figuring it out. 
if I see someone that's talented and really wants to work for Okta, even if we don't have an exact fit for them, I hire them hmm. and then figure it out later. But, you know, I just, I'm honest with it. It's like, we don't have an exact fit. You can start doing this. We'll figure something out. So it's a little nuance on it. But I think the lesson there is like, if someone's motivated to work for your company and you get a good vibe about their energy and their talent, don't be too overly optimized on the order and the exact fit right away. Get them on board and figure out how you can fit them in, you know, and let them evolve. I feel like that flies in the face of a lot of advice companies get of like, hey, first write out the job description and decide exactly what values you want in the person and what skills they need to have, then go find the perfect person. So why flip it that way? You know what they say about advice? <laughs> <laughs> Be careful. Careful who you listen to. No, I'm just kidding. So I think that, that all that's good. I mean, I think you should, I think writing out the job description serves two purposes. One is it clarifies what you're looking for to yourself, which probably isn't the most important purpose. The most important purpose is that it gets alignment on your team of what you need and what they're doing and what they're not doing and what the new role will do. So I think that's all good. I just say do that plus do this other thing, which is don't be shy about bringing people on and then finding a role they can fit into later. It doesn't preclude you from being organized and thoughtful about what you're looking for. You just kind of come at it from both directions. You'd be organized and thoughtful about what you're looking for. And at the same time, be aggressive about bringing people onto the team that might be able to contribute in a not obvious way that you can think about in the hiring process. Cool. And, and how do you handle the job title? Like you find someone else, you don't know where they fit in. Like you have to put some job title on the offer letter. And I don't know if anyone's still printing business cards, but <laughs> how, how do you handle that? You got to give them a title. And a lot of times you, there's two parts of that. There's the function of the job and there's the seniority level. My philosophy is that on the seniority level, you don't want to mislead people. So if you're going to pay a person at a VP level or pay a person at a senior director or director level, you should call them that. A lot of people have a tendency to say, hey, we got to pay someone something to get them on board, but we're not going to call them that because that would ruffle feathers in the organization. My philosophy is that you got to like give them the title that you're paying them. You should be transparent with the organization about what you're paying them through the title. But maybe the exact job function, you can just, if it's vague, just leave it vague. Or if it's, they're going to start with something, you know, they can be the director of new projects or they can be the director of finding ways to attract new customers. <laughs> but don't call them the manager of that. Call them the director. You're paying them like a director because they're talented. They feel good about it. You know, you're transparent to the team. And then the descriptive part of the title, you know, it's kind of clear that you maybe it's a starting job or you're open to change it going forward. Just to finish out the Salesforce story, I mean, now Mark Benioff is, of course, a legend in the SaaS world and probably one of the most famous business people. If you've ever, Mark was a legend then. I think Mark's one of those guys that's been a legend ever since he was probably five years old. <laughs> in fact, when I was at Salesforce, I worked with a guy, a really, really talented guy. His name is Steve Fisher. And he actually went to junior high with Mark. And little known fact, at the same junior high also was Barry Bonds. Ah. And they all went to junior high together. One thing Steve told me was that Mark always had that presence, you know, that presence, like he was the leader, he was the visionary, he was in charge of everything from the time he was, you know, whatever, 12 years old. But yeah, he was, you know, the company was indelibly stamped with his leadership in terms of being brash and out there. I mentioned the ads that used to poke fun at Siebel and the aggressiveness with the way Salesforce espoused this new industry and put it on the map. And he's done an amazing job and continued to, you know, I haven't been there in like 11 years. He's continued to rock and roll these past 11 years. While you were there observing him, like, what were the elements where you said, like, that's something I'd want to emulate if and when I ever start my own company? And then what were the elements where you like, you know, that's Mark and that's not me? So the main thing that I got watching Mark was that the clarity with how important the big vision is, really to the, in my logical engineering brain, to the degree he was overstating it, right? But I learned how important that was. And he would make these bold, brash, visionary statements. And that was the direction that the company ran in. And that is something that's incredibly valuable. And the thing about Mark too, I remember I'd probably been working there six months and he was, Mark was starting to really get energy internally around converting or migrating Salesforce into customizable, extensible platform. Because when I got there, it was just, like I said, very simple. It was accounts, contacts, leads, some simple reports. And in the next six years I was there, we turned it into a completely programmable, extensible platform that you could build any application, you could launch it on the app exchange. And when I was there about six months, Mark was starting to talk about that vision. And he was saying these, what sounded to me like these crazy things. We were in this meeting, there's about five or six of us in there. And he's like, 
And you're going to be able to put any kind of data ever you want into Salesforce. And you're going to have any kind of application. And then he started talking about it like it was already done. And he said, and you know, you could put any data in and any kind of business process and any kind of workflow. I'm looking, I'm like, he doesn't know what our product does. What is he going to do? He doesn't know. And then he stops mid-sentence and he looks at me and he goes, now, Todd, I know that's all a bunch of BS. I know we can't do that today. But in the future, we're going to get there. So you got you get your team to like work harder and code some more code and like <laughs> build this thing so we can make it a reality. So that's the one thing for Mark. It's that vision. It's that I mentioned PeopleSoft. It was cool because it was the employee's company and the, it felt like we had to build it and it was us and we owned it. Salesforce was unique because we were leading the industry. I mean, PeopleSoft, one of the bummer things about it was that, you mean, the highest ambition of the company was like to be number two to SAP, right? Which is not a great ambition, but Salesforce, it was like, we were leading. We were going to create this industry, which was pretty cool. Did you ever find like, were there any downsides to that setup? Like, did you ever just feel overwhelmed that like, hey, here's my CEO saying we can do all this and I haven't yet specced out when it's going to be built by and, you know, the tension with customer promises and just all the things that go with shipping software? I think people kind of knew. I think we were consistent in our pushing the envelope of the vision and so forth. So I think in a way it was understood, right? If we announced something that really meant it would have, you know, happen in a year or so. And there was so much innovation coming out too. So it was kind of like a, understood by people, by customers. And customers were successful. Like when we did ship something, it was rock solid and they got value out of it. So customer success was really a foundation of the subscription model at Salesforce and you know, something that all those cloud companies, including Okta, has done now in the latest generation. But one of the downsides, or I guess one of the trade-offs is that when you have such a clear vocal leader, it takes away from a little bit about it feeling like it's the employee's company. There's a lot of good things about having a very clear leader, makes all the decisions, sets the vision and so forth. But I think the downside is it feels a little bit less like it's the employee's company. In Okta, do you think it's more the employee's company than it is you being the Benny off, you know, giving the dates from up above? I've tried to balance the two. I mean, Okta is my third job, right? And so I really tried to take the best of both worlds. The vision, the strong leadership, the leading an industry that like we've done at Okta and well, like we did at Salesforce and try to combine that with, I really culturally at Okta, I'm really trying to make it feel like the employee's company. And there's a lot of tactics we do to make it feel that way, whether it's how we share information, whether that's processes and procedures and how we try to emphasize trust and collaboration versus, you know, rules and mandates. Yeah. So we try to strike the balance. And I think a lot of people do, right? I think that when founders build companies, they, they look back in their career. And sometimes if it's they're very early in their career, they look back at college or school and try to bring that to their cultures. You know, I think you see Google, right? Google was a college culture. The founders there were getting PhDs and that shaped the culture. So I think I'm no different. I think I try to combine the best parts of Salesforce and the best parts of PeopleSoft and throw in a little bit of my personality on the side and let the chips fall where they fall. Let's talk about the rest of your time at Salesforce. You start with 13 engineers working for you. How big did it get before you decide to leave and take the plunge? I'm very proud of what I accomplished there. I joke with when I talk to old friends that still work there, that used to work there, I joke that um, I love that they're so successful because every year they get more successful, they make my resume look better. <laughs> But yeah, I think that the main thing I did was I was really lucky. You know, a lot of life is timing. And the timing there was they had this business that was clearly differentiated. It was this brand that was clearly powerful and really an undersized engineering team. So I had, I came in at the perfect time and a big part of my success was just hiring people. I think when I left, my team was up to, I think about 300 or 400 people. I can't even remember. You know, it was design, engineering documentation. So growth, we just hired great engineers, kept the innovation going. And then in terms of the products, we built out a ton of products. But the biggest thing was that we built out this platform, the um, force.com platform and the app exchange and turned Salesforce in from like I mentioned before, really a bunch of screens that were hard coded for Salesforce automation and a little bit of support into this extensible, customizable platform development platform that could be used for anything. And by the way, speaking of inspiration, a lot of the vision for that or how we would actually do that came from PeopleSoft, right? Because remember what I worked on at PeopleSoft was this platform toolkit, right? This platform toolkit where you could build any application and it was used by multiple applications and I brought a lot of that to Salesforce and that helped shape the idea of how we would build out this development platform at Salesforce. What led to you wanting to leave? I mean, a lot of people would spend their, their whole career at a company like that that's growing that they were... Uh 
a part of the early team with? What what caused that moment? So I was there about six years, and the biggest part of it was wanting to leave and start Okta was for the opportunity. You know, I started in 2003 and then left to start Okta right at the end of 2008, so the beginning of 2009. And what happened in those years was pretty important. First of all, Salesforce was successful. So I got an inside look at the cloud and how powerful and how valuable it could be for customers and how differentiated it could be and disruptive it could be for the competition. So I got a firsthand look into that. And then the second thing is that you started to see these other types of um, workloads moving to the cloud. You saw Google built Google Apps for domains. So you could see, hey, look, email, people aren't going to run their own email servers. The businesses are not going to have exchange on-premise. That's just not because it's so much easier to have an email in the cloud. I mean, you're sending the email out anyways. Why not put it in the cloud, you know? And then Amazon released EC2 and S3. And so then you could see the infrastructure layer was going to the cloud. So you didn't have to be a huge visionary to think like, in the future, 5, 10, 15 years out, there's going to be a choice. Everything in IT is going to have a choice to be built and assembled from the cloud. I wasn't naive to think that everything would be in the cloud in the five or 10 years, but you knew there was going to be a choice. And that's tremendously disruptive. Anytime there's a big disruptive shift in technology, there's an opportunity to build great companies. That's how all the companies are built, whether it's if you look at Microsoft, it was the transition to the PC from many computers and mainframes. I mean, Microsoft was this little upstart and there's no reason why they should have won. IBM should have dominated that. But it's just anytime there's a technical transition, these young companies have a shot. And probably are, have a more advantageous position in the big companies because they don't have to unlearn anything. They don't have to fight with internal fiefdoms to do invest in the new projects. So I get, got really excited about this transition to the cloud. And the other part about my career is I'd, there was part of me that wanted to be the boss and part of me that wanted to attack the challenge of creating a company from scratch, knowing that the odds were very long. I mean, you know, I can say that these transitions lead to the opportunity to build these new companies, but that's by no means a guarantee of success. I mean, the odds are still very long. I mean, the odds are you're going to fail. You know, I think the year that Okta was founded, there were, I forget the exact number, like 8,000 companies were either started or got big enough to get some kind of funding. So 8,000 and and how many ended up even surviving, let alone thriving over the long term. So the odds are very much against you. But for me, I saw this transition. I saw this opportunity in this disruptive technology wave, the biggest wave I, I was convinced that would I would see in my career, the biggest change. I just couldn't be the person that didn't take a shot, even though I knew the, the odds were long. So paint the picture for me of what your life looked like when you're finish up your stint at Salesforce and you're, you're making that decision, go to Okta, like how old were you? Did you have a family? What, what was your life like? I'd been there about six years, as I mentioned, and I was had gotten married a few years before and we had our first child. She was six months old. And my job at Salesforce was a great job. I mean, the company was had grown a lot that like we've talked about. Everyone at the time was worried about the financial crisis. 2008, Lehman Brothers had collapsed. And I guess to some degree, everyone was concerned about the economy and their company's future. But Salesforce was positioned very well. It was the, at the time, it was the prominent company and still is the prominent company in cloud computing. I was running engineering there. It, my career was going great. It was really comfortable. I had proven to be pretty good at the job. In my mind, I saw these trends coming and I saw this opportunity to go create something potentially big in the cloud. And I also, for me, it was about the challenge. I mentioned before the challenge of starting a company and like facing those long odds and knowing that it's probably not going to work out, but still taking a shot. That was appealing to me because like I said, I'd gotten pretty comfortable in my job and had done pretty well at it. So I was doing this all over in my mind and I was kicking out all these ideas on product ideas that could take advantage of the shift of the cloud. And I remember I finally decided that I was going to do it. I finally decided that, you know, I had a couple ideas. I talked to a bunch of people about it, wrote, even wrote out a business plan for an idea, shared it with my wife. And, you know, she just kind of looked at it and said, whatever, it's, you have a good job. I don't know why you would even think about changing. So I came home one day and I told her and she'd spent the day watching about Lehman Brothers collapsing and taking care of the baby. And I came home one day and I said, honey, I'm going to quit my job. I'll never forget it. She looked at me and she said, what are you crazy? You know, but in a little more colorful language than that. <laughs> so we, you know, we had to talk it through as kind of stressful conversations. And I, you know, she's an engineer, I'm, I'm an engineer, logical thinker, but she's less of a risk taker than I am. So in her calculus, it's kind of like either you have a job at a successful company or you're a bum. There's really no, like, <laughs> there's no in between, right? Are you a bum or are you going up to go to work every day at a successful company? So I, I did what anyone would do. You know, I, I wrote her a PowerPoint deck. A presentation and it was called 
my proposal to quit my job and start a new company. And the subtitle was why I'm not crazy. So it's, uh, it's funny to look at it now, but at the time, you know, some of the things are pretty prescient in there. They say, you know, hey, all the great companies of the next 10, 20 years will be started around cloud and cloud is this foundational shift that is going to make all this great opportunity to build these new companies. And by the way, all these great companies like Oracle and Microsoft were started in recession. So the recession is not a bad time to start a company. So that's all sounds smart. That was like one slide, maybe two slides. Then there were nine slides of basically me explaining how when this inevitably didn't work out, I could get another job. <laughs> so it was like, kind of, we're going to be okay, honey. We have some money saved. So if ever anyone thinks I could see the future, I probably wouldn't have spent nine pages on <laughs> why I was just going to be able to get another job. So we had a, a long conversation and talked about the PowerPoint. And at the end of the day, we both agreed that, you know, we had enough financial, you know, a little bit of an SX save for the family and to make sure we, our basic needs would be met if anything went wrong. And then it was a shot that it was worth taking, even though the odds were long. The upside scenario, and if you look back at the PowerPoint now, the upside scenario that I modeled out, I modeled out a bunch of possible scenarios, many of which were that it failed and that I would, you know, I just go get another job. But the dream upside scenario is that we would be successful, we'd be able to raise funding, and that we would eventually go public and the market cap would be $100 million. That was the dream scenario. <laughs> and now that's probably a, a day's trading variance, right? <laughs> yeah, we've done a little better than that. <laughs> <laughs> A quick break so I can thank our sponsors, SteadyMD, who's actually started by a longtime Venture Voice listener, and I'm really excited to have them as a sponsor because I've been trying it, and it's awesome. First, you want to check it out, just go SteadyMD.com slash Venture Voice. Let me tell you about it really quick. If you're anything like me, you probably don't want to go to the doctor right now. With SteadyMD, going to the doctor is like every other meeting nowadays. Just simply use Zoom. SteadyMD, it gives you your personal doctor. It's telehealth done right. You start by going to their website, steadymd.com slash venturevoice to take a quiz. I, I gave it a shot. It matched me with a doctor. It actually, I, I love to go on uh, really long cycling trips that found me a doctor that's also into that. It kind of matches you based on your lifestyle and your health needs so you can really connect with the doctor. Then you do a one-hour appointment with your doctor. You start a real relationship. It's kind of like the old school concept of having a doctor that really gets to know you. And then your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone, or video chat. What I think is really cool is that I can do this all from the comfort of my apartment. I don't have to be stuck in a waiting room anymore. They can still send prescriptions to my local pharmacy a few blocks away. They have an app. It keeps all my medical records in one place. You get unlimited access to this doctor for only $99 a month, no additional fees, and SteadyMD will even help you understand and get the most from your health insurance, even though insurance isn't required. Since my last episode, I just had a chance to do my first visit with a SteadyMD doctor. It was really cool, and I never thought I'd be saying that about going to the doctor, but the doctor I found there spent more time with me than I'd spent with any other doctor, 45-minute conversation, really got to know my health habits, what my health goals were, even talked about exercise, cycling, and all other kinds of topics. And it was my first feel for what it must have been like back in the day when you had your family doctor that you really got to know. I didn't feel rushed like I always do at the doctor's office. And it was really nice doing it from home, not having to go through a waiting room especially in times like these. Works in all 50 states. Check out steadymd.com slash venturevoice. That URL is important so they know we sent you. steadymd.com slash venturevoice. And you can take the quiz for free while you listen to the rest of this show. Now enjoy. There was kind of this lore at the time, and especially because that was like, you know, right, as Facebook was really taking off and every, I remember knowing a lot of VCs back then, all they wanted to do is meet the next Harvard dropout or, you know, the next kid they could fund. Did you feel any concern kind of going into it, either, you know, actually doubting yourself that you aren't this kind of beginner going at it with nothing to lose and no family, or just worry that VCs would... uh you know, would give you a hard time for not fitting that profile? 
It's a great question. I, I think that the investor thing was more because of the financial crisis. The fundraising environment was pretty cold. And I attribute that more to the financial crisis than anything else. If anything, I think that my reputation at Salesforce and my co-founder, who I, I knew from Salesforce, it was amazing. Another lucky thing to meet up with him at the time. I knew him at Salesforce, but then I, after I left and started working on the company for a few months, we got reunited and then decided to work together. So between myself and him, we had a pretty good track record in terms of Salesforce. And he was more on the sales and business development side, and I was more on the engineering and product side. So I think that that was the VCs were receptive to that combination, you know, and, and a lot of them knew the cloud was going to be big or they thought it would be big. So I think the biggest issue with fundraising was just the financial crisis. And these people were, they were worried that markets were going to be frozen. They weren't going to be able to get their money out of banks. And if you're a VC, that's a big deal. So that was probably the issue more than anything. I remember we wanted to move very quickly. So we had a mock-up for the product, which was different than what Okta became. The product, the original mock-up was for a company called Sashur. So the idea was that it was a system that would check and monitor your SaaS applications to make sure they were up and reliable. Because when everything shifted to the cloud, you didn't have the software, you couldn't install the old generation monitoring technology because it assumed you had the software. So Sashur would be this cloud-based way to monitor your systems. Now, the problem with the name is that it sounds like a French perfume. (laughs) As my co-founder who speaks French told me, and my wife told me that too. That was one problem. The second problem was that, you know, it was kind of something that maybe big companies might want, but most companies wanted the cloud and wanted SaaS just so it would work. They didn't want to have to monitor it. So we took that feedback. We talked about probably 50 people about Sashur and that product mock-up. And right in the beginning, we pivoted to identity because they kept telling us that this monitoring is kind of interesting, but the problem I have now is People log into their Windows PCs on my network and everything works great until they have to go to Box or until they have to go to Salesforce. So just solve that problem. Make it the login to these cloud apps work like they're on my network. How long were you pushing forward with Sheshur? Just a few uh, months. Yeah, like we started working together in like May of 2009. And by July, we were pivoted to Okta. Was it like one dramatic moment? Were you two out at lunch or drinks and talking about it? Or was it more just a slow realization? I think I had been coming to the realization because I'd been talking to people for a few months when, you know, Freddie was finishing up his MBA and joined me, joined, he and I started working together full time in like the spring of that year. And so I'd been working on people for a while and he'd had a couple conversations. So I remember one day I just said, we need to change. Here's what I think we should do. And he was smart enough. He really liked the Sashur idea, but he was smart enough just from the conversations he was in to know, yeah, this identity thing, let's at least go try it a little bit. And once we had a few conversations around the identity thing, it became very clear that was much better, just the way it resonated with people. And that, you know, it had the good combination of a pain point that people would pay for and want to solve at that time. And then also, this is also equally as important, you have to be able to build, at least for us, we wanted to build an iconic tech company, right? So you had to be able to have enough confidence that you'd be able to build this iconic tech company around this initial idea. A lot of initial ideas, people will pay for them, but they don't have that long-term staying power. They become a feature. But I knew enough about from my experience at Salesforce and talking to customers and my experience at PeopleSoft that just to build simple cloud single sign-on, you had to build a lot in the back end. You had to build a directory service and integration and do a lot of reporting and complex things that eventually you could build a broad platform around. So that's why we decided to pivot to this. And it turned out to be the only pivot we made. And it was pretty efficient because it was only two of us and no customers and hadn't raised money yet. <laughs> so it was, uh, if you're going to pivot, it's the best time to pivot. It seems to me with an idea like that, there must have been a chicken and the egg problem because you could sell the customer, but now you also have to convince Salesforce and all the other SaaS companies out there to allow for a single sign-on. So how did you think about tackling that kind of chicken or the egg uh, challenge there? That's a really smart question. If you took a time machine back there and you looked at the objections that we got for this idea, the objections weren't really from customers. They were more from investors or from industry pundits, call them. The two objections were, one is that there's never been a big independent identity company. So all the companies that are in the space either fail or they get bought up before they get too big. So that was one objection. The other objection was what you said, which was, well, these vendors aren't going to let you connect to them. Why would they let you to connect and do these integrations? And we had an insight there, which is that at Salesforce, 
I worked with customers that wanted Salesforce to connect to their legacy identity products. And there was a lot of pressure on Salesforce as a vendor to open up those APIs to do that because the customers were asking for it. So I had this idea that if we could get enough customers, vendors would never be able to stop that train because enough customers asking for the integrations, the integrations get made for login and single sign-on and the integrations get more customers and it becomes this virtuous cycle. And that ended up being very true. And it's one of the core differentiations of Okta today. We spent a lot of time building this platform for these integrations and investing in these network of integrations and this, you know tools and systems to maintain them and extend them. And it's to this day, it's one of our biggest competitive differentiators. How would you do the pitch though to the first customer too? Because like, okay, well, I want to use this thing. It sounds great. Single sign-on for all my employees. But then day one, are you going to, you know, what portion of the SaaS software that I use do you integrate with? I remember that it was very, very pragmatic. I mean, with customers, you know, investors and employees, you're talking about this big vision, right? You're saying, we're going to do this and we're going to take over the world. Customers is very pragmatic. It's like, are your users annoyed from typing in their password when they want to log into Salesforce? We can solve that problem for you. Here's how it works. Literally, the first customers, there was two applications. It was Salesforce and Google. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like you would type one password in to save you from having to type two in. The Let's just say the um, efficiency gain wasn't massive, but you got to start somewhere. 50%. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we had a working system very quickly, actually, like nine months, we had our first paying customer that they could log into two systems. And the first year or so was we just basically got customer by customer one by one. And we asked them, what other applications do you have? <laughs> well, Adam, we didn't make it the customer's problem. We didn't say, oh, you know, that vendor doesn't support this API. Whatever we had to do, we made it work, whether it was screen scraping, whether it was any kind of protocol, any kind of API, we made it work. And I think that make it work for the customer survives to this day in Okta. It's like, it's not the customer's problem, it's our problem, and we're going to make it work for them. Who is the first customer? It was a company called Exactly. It was a compensation management software. We raised our seed round of funding from Andreessen Horowitz, which actually were their first investment ever, actually, Andreessen Horowitz. And they invested in the seed round in the summer of 2009. And then by December, we wanted to have our first paying customer. And we signed up exactly. It was a massive order for $500. I remember, got the check for $500 by the end of that year. And it, you know, it was like a huge milestone. I showed my parents. I was like, look, look, this company I started, we got a check for $500. They ended up actually never deploying the software. And so they had tritted. But then a few years later, they actually bought again. And so they're still a customer now. That's awesome. So great lifetime value. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's the value of that first order? It's pretty good. A lot of the early customers, it's pretty cool to see them. LinkedIn was an early customer. The ones that are, you know, survived as businesses are all still customers. And tell me now, when, when you were scaling Okta, so you get the seed round, you get your first few customers. You'd previously run engineering teams, but it was your first time actually being the CEO and running all the teams. What were the new challenges that came with being CEO that were unique from being a leader in a, in a big company? Oh, there's a tons. Of, it was the learning curve was pretty steep. In fact, you know, Ben Horowitz, who I mentioned was from Andreessen Horowitz was the first seed investor. And then he's been on the board and we've become pretty close and good friends. And he tells a story. He says, it's an interesting compliment he gives me. He says, you're a very good CEO, especially when you compare yourself to how bad you were in the early days. <laughs> so I was like, Jesus, Ben, come on, Ben, that's not very nice. <laughs> he's like, you were pretty bad. And it's true because I had a lot to learn. It's a very, very different job. I mean, I think for example, here, I'll give you a couple examples. Decision-making, when I was running big groups, my decision-making process was super fast and super confident. And that's an advantage. It helps your teams move faster and it's clarity of thought, which is a good thing. But as a CEO, my decision-making process really slowed down. And for a while, it bothered me. I was like, why am I so much slower to make decisions? And I realized it's pretty simple. It's There's no backstop for you. I mean, you have the ultimate call. When you have a boss or you have people around you that can override your decision or maybe modify it, it's easier to go faster. And as the CEO, you don't have that. So you have to make sure that you get involved in the right decisions. You don't overly involve yourself in all of them. You have to be ready to make the, you have to have gathered enough context and educated yourself. And I think this is where a lot of people could do better, even if they're not the CEO, spend more time just gathering context and gathering information. So when the time ultimately comes, 
and you need to ponder that decision, you'll be equipped to do it. So that's one example. Another example is my natural instinct when I was the CEO was to kind of solve all the problems. I'm the CEO. I have that job for a reason. I can figure everything out and I'm going to just tell you how it all should be and then you guys do it and then we'll just go off to glory together, right? I think a lot of people make that mistake when they get promoted or they get a new job and they feel like they have to act the part. I'm the manager now, so I know all the answers. And and I think there nothing could be further from the truth. And especially for me, it was now I'm the CEO, but I don't have all the answers. No one could have all the answers. We're creating something new. I had security and identity in the cloud and in a world where there's some cloud applications, but not everything's in the cloud. How are we going to do this? And it was a real, you know, a couple of years in for me, it was a real change in mentality from like, I'm going to make the decisions. I'm, I have all the answers to, you know what? I don't know. I have some ideas and I'm going to share them with the team and with the board and, and have a kind of a perspective on where we should go and what we should do. But I'm going to be open to not knowing and getting the team to help me figure it out. For me, that was really liberating and did a couple of things. One is that it got us to better decisions, right? It got us to better collaboration in the company and better output on the decisions and better strategy and better tactics. But the other thing was that it built a more loyal team. They felt more bought into what we were trying to do and more armed with information about what their fate might hold. And it made a, made way more loyalty. It was way different than just hearing someone preach about what the future was going to be. They felt bought in. Back to that thing I was talking, make it feel like their company, their builders and owners. That's another thing that persists to this day, the way we run the company. We try to be open and share the knowledge and kind of put it on the team to help get us where we need to go. What led to the realization that you weren't saying, uh, I don't know enough? Was it an outside voice like Ben? Was it your team giving you that feedback? Was it listening to a podcast? Where, where did it come from? I'm pretty stubborn. It's not as bad as it sounds, but I don't take input very well. I listen to it, but I'm pretty stubborn. I want to make up my mind myself. You know, it's a realization about my personality. It's a, probably a weakness I have. Or I was talking to my dad about my son. I was talking about something my son was doing and he wouldn't change his mind. And he was like totally stubborn to a fault about something. And my dad's laughing. I said, what are you laughing at? He goes, he's just like you. He's exactly like you. You sound just like me. You sound, you won't change his mind. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's my personality. We were not doing well. Like we were missing our sales targets. And there was a lot of questions about my ability to lead the company from the board level and from the team. I was kind of in a corner, right? I had to, you know, take a different approach. And I'm sure there was input, but I think if, as much as anything, it was being self-aware about the situation and reacting and coming up with a sensible approach to try to get out of it. Hit, hit, hit rock bottom and learn it for yourself. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, there's lots of things going on there, there. You know, there was the product was getting better. The market was starting to come to us with more cloud. And then I think some improvements by me on, on the leadership was, you know, it all came together like after a few years. And what was the hardest year in the company? Oh, it's not even close. 2011 was really hard. And it was the confluence of all these things I'm talking about. We'd been around long enough that we had expectations, right? We'd set put forecasts out there. We had customers, but we really hadn't been around long enough for the product to really galvanize and, and have all these applications and address all these use cases. And I think a lot of companies go through this, this kind of middle ground where they're not the shiny new kid on the block anymore, but they're really haven't established themselves. And we were no exception. And I think that we stuck to it enough to weather the storm. We also had a great investor who David Wyden from Coastal Ventures really stepped up and led our Series B, even though the numbers weren't looking great in that summer. And then the team rallied and we finally beat our sales target in the third quarter of 2011. It was $380,000, which is really small now, but that was the sales target and we did 420000 So we beat the target first time and it literally felt like we just you know, landed on the moon. <laughs> it was like the most exaltation of the whole company we felt uh, ever. So from then, it was pretty steady up, up into the right. We started to get more established and, you know, got a bunch of customers and success begat success. And we were off to the races, but 2011 was tough. Did you ever think during that time that either maybe you should, you weren't a CEO and you should let someone else run it or that the board would force that upon you? Or were you always just stubborn, you know, and sure that you'd figure it out? I mean, I think that the main thing is that there was continued success and momentum. So I think it changes the default presumption once you have that. So once you have that, you're like default the right person for the job, where when you don't have it, you're, it's never totally clear, right? What you should change. This is true, not just the CEO, but everyone in the company. It's never totally clear if the success is because of them and they're the right person for the job or 
if not, right? So I think the default changes once you have some success. So for us, the default was that I was the right person. And as long as we were able to build the right team and clarify the right product vision and keep attracting customers and investors, it was continued growth for me and the company. And, you know, I'm the right guy for the job. And it's kind of been that way since I changed the default from maybe not to definitely yes. And after you switch that mode, where from there on out, has the job of you being CEO been kind of the same job and it's just bigger company, more people? Or were there other inflection points where you're like, oh, I really got to change my behavior to be an effective CEO at this new level of scale? It's definitely a different job. I mean, it's changes. The growth has been very, very significant. So it's definitely a, it's a different job all the time. I mentioned this before, but one of the big changes is the pace of it and the, the way it feels every day. Because when you're early on, it feels very frenetic. It feels like every minute you have something coming at you, you're doing three jobs, you're the recruiter, the product manager, the counselor. But as you get bigger and bigger, you get amazing, talented leaders in all these jobs. You come to your staff meeting and, and you have all these people that know way more about their job than you do. You know, <laughs> Our CFO, it's like, he knows more about being a CFO than I'll ever know, right? <laughs> head of sales, head of marketing, all these people, HR. So then I think you're job becomes, how do you get involved? And this is a continuous evolution, but how do you get involved in the things where you can really move the needle? And how do you not get involved and not gum up the areas where you can't? And then by extension, how do you make the right decisions or get involved in the right decisions that you can move the needle on and avoid the ones you can't? And then how do you prepare yourself for making those decisions, get a high hit rate on those decisions? Yeah. So I think it's a, I guess, a broad framework for how to scale in the job, but the specific iteration and the evolution of it changes, I'd say every six months, it's pretty different. And then this last year, it's been completely different with what's going on in the world. I can only imagine. I want to talk about that more in a minute, but how'd you get the word out for Okta? Because it's not a consumer product and it's not, in a way, it's kind of one of these things that seems like because it works, it's maybe even more a little invisible in people's lives. Yeah. If you like your Okta's in your way and you know a lot about Okta, it's probably not a good sign <laughs> as a user. For us, it's, it was very much the marketing strategy was very customer centric. So from day one, it was get a customer, make them successful, help them tell our story. So people tease us because we have so many customer testimonials on our website. This is probably like five or six years ago when we had less than a thousand customers, but we probably had like 700 of them on our website. <laughs> <laughs> the majority. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I may be exaggerating a little bit there, but. So it's a lot of customer-centric marketing. And I think in you know the last 10 years, it's been you know the rise of obviously social media and customers do their research on with their associates and their friends. And I think that that customer-centric marketing has really helped us. It's changed though. Enough people, you know, we have enough users now and enough customers that many people use the product more and more. I talk to people when they join the company, hey, how'd you find out about us? Oh, we were a user at last three companies or we'll get a new customer and the CIO will say, oh yeah, I've used Okta at three customers now, or three past companies now. It's always worked great for me. So I'm going to bring you into this new company. So it's a kind of an organic brand. I mean, it's an organic brand that we've built up day by day, brick by brick over the last 11 years. So I know you were intentional early on, especially about PR and, and getting the word out through the media. How did you think about that and you know how much time to invest in it and the kind of uncertainty that can come with PR and uh, you know not knowing how the journals will write it. We focused on it slow and steady. I would say you know we never had this huge big splash. It was kind of like steady, build up the relationships. You know, I think like an example of that is we worked with Business Insider pretty early, and not a lot of people thought it was a, especially for enterprise technology. Not a lot of people thought it was worthwhile. It was kind of these attention grabbing headlines, you know. On, that were easily shareable on mobile. And we stuck with that. And, and that's a good example of a relationship over time that has really paid off for us. We've gotten to know them really well, and they've done a really good job accurately telling our story. Journalists, I think like anyone else, they respect authenticity. They respect people that are trying to do something good, treating people fairly. And then more than anything else, they respect people that treat them fairly. Get, tell them the straight story, the good and the bad. They don't want to like beat up anyone. It's the people that get beat up, I think, are in the media, I think, are the people that a lot of times they deserve it. They go for a time where no one can say anything except positive, glowing things about them. And then maybe they don't behave the right way, or maybe they get a little bit too much hubris. And then 
the media tries to, like they should, they try to balance that out. So I think it's for us, PR has been a long-term thing. It's been steady. I think it's good to have some of the consistent coverage we've had. With uh, scaling your culture, I know Salesforce is famous for V2Mom, their kind of framework for, uh, well, you could probably describe it better than me. I'm curious, did you just take that and port that over to Okta or do you have your own system for getting all your many employees aligned? Yeah, it's definitely inspired by what we did at Salesforce with some pretty important tweaks we made, I think. Our system is called, we call it the VMT. It's a little bit similar to the V2Mom process from Salesforce, but it's also similar to like a OKR, or a, you know, objectives, key results type framework. And for us, it's really important about alignment. And as we've grown, we've, I think, focused a lot on this tool to make sure that we're trying to be aligned as much as possible. And probably the biggest thing we've done well is that we've resisted the temptation to overly complicate it. I think especially if you come at it from an engineering mindset, you want to build this perfect system that takes into account every different variable and stack ranks everything and has this unambiguous priority. I think that's really hard to do. And you can end up spending more time building the framework than actually just talking about the things you're trying to align on and communicating them. So I think we've been able to strike the right balance between a simple framework, getting some alignment, driving some alignment, and then frankly, letting the team figure out the white space, right? Because I can't figure my team or even the top three or four managers in the company from a level perspective can't figure out the white space. I mean, the team has to figure it out. You know, I think if you try to overly craft some structure or some framework, the problem is that you're going to fail. You're not going to fill in all the white space. And secondly, you're going to give the impression that it's already filled in for people, (laughs) which is probably as damaging as anything. To carry out the Acta story, you get to the point where you can IPO just in a nutshell, what was that like? What was it like to go through an IPO? In a lot of ways, it's the vision of every entrepreneur. They want to go through that and take the company public. It was For me, it was super educational. I learned a lot through it. I learned a lot about how the financial world works and met a lot of great investors that invest in public companies. The main thing for me I remember about it is it was very important that the company, while we celebrated it, the company didn't use it as a reason to stop pushing or as a reason to be satisfied. And so the analogy I came up with was, you know, we started moving people on past the IPO, like a year before, a year and a half before. We started talking about bigger goals, multi-years out from the IPO. We started talking about, we wanted to build this iconic company, not get so focused on the IPO. So it started a, a year and a half before. Around the time of the IPO, I just kept talking about, hey, this is like high school graduation, right? It's a great thing. You want to have a high school graduation party. But at the end of the day, you're kind of expected to graduate, right, <laughs> from high school. And you, you don't want to be the person that the best day in their life is the day they graduate from high school. You know, you got a lot of future, right? You have college, you have your life, you have a lot to accomplish. Let's not get all satisfied with high school graduation. And then, and I think that put it in perspective. So we, we enjoyed it. And the last thing is, you know, we've really tried to use it to our advantage, whether it's the money we were able to raise or whether it's the PR and visibility, whether it's the, and especially with customers, customers that are buying security from a cloud company, the fact that you're public and you have the audited financials and you're, you have this imprinture of, you know, being more official, right? We've used that to our advantage and it's been three and a half years now we've been public. It's worked out great. Tell me, what were your views on, you of course uh, now have proven yourself to have a company that really enables remote work. What was your own view on remote work for your team prior to the pandemic and it, it being forced upon us all? I was skeptical that we would be able to function so well. I thought it would be harder than it has been. The team has done a great job. And I think that skepticism actually helped because I think it opened up, it gave everyone space to think about ways to optimize it and ways to make it better. And not just assuming that because we can see each other online and because we can get in a Zoom room that it's just going to be perfect. So I think because we were a little skeptical, we said, hey, we have to make sure we just port everything we did from the old world into this new world. I think it's allowed us to have more agility and to be more effective. And we continue to do that too. I think that working totally remotely for six months, I think is not the same as doing it for a year or year and a half, right? I think a lot of things you can defer for six months, whether it's a really hard project or a really tough issue about future innovation, or maybe you're hiring someone senior or, but over the next six to 12 months, we're going to have to do those things. And so we continue to be vigilant about making sure we're agile and flexible and thinking about how things are working and making them better. And, but it's been a pleasant surprise to watch the team react and rally. 
continue to thrive through this time. Has it changed how you think about how businesses should, uh, you know, your own business and others should work going forward? Do you think you'll ever get back to, hey, everybody come into the office Monday through Friday? Or or do you see uh, kind of a, a new world in which you'd operate differently? I think this whole experience has pushed us five years in the future in terms of everyone's being comfortable with working remotely, doing things like this podcast online. I guess, yeah, more people before, way more people got in together in person to do podcasts, even though now you can see that it's not really required. I guess a better example there would be broadcast TV, right? Broadcast TV always used to be in, you have to go to the studio. Now it's, we've got it working pretty well, totally online. I think that ripples through everything. And I think even before the pandemic, we had this concept at Okta called dynamic work, where we were moving toward having many roles in the company, not even, they could come into the office, but it was much more flexible. They could work at home. They could come into the office if they needed a collaboration space. And I think it was having a hard time getting momentum internally just because the inertia was, hey, we're going to do it like we've always done it. We're going to come into the office. That's where we're going to hire people. And I think our effectiveness being remote has really fast forwarded that effort for us. And now if you look at our headcount plan for the next year, there's tons of roles that are specifically dynamic. We're being more efficient with how we're going to use our real estate and continuing to be agile to think that we have work to do to figure out exactly how it's going to work. In some ways, everyone being on Zoom is easier than when people have a choice. Because when people have the choice, you're going to have half the people in the office and half the people online. So now who's the first class citizen? Is the meeting an, a Zoom meeting or is it it's probably going to be a Zoom meeting, but is the default you jump on the whiteboard in the room or is the default you use an online whiteboard? Or how do you balance the people in person versus online? So I think those types of things still need to be figured out, but we're definitely never going back to the world that was as offline as it was before. So you've hit your mission of making a $100 million company. Yes, we, we did that well. So you're at $30 billion now. <laughs> you know, so you made it, right? $30 billion. I mean, your, your stock keeps doubling. I'm sure you could cash out and live a pretty uh, charmed life. Instead, you're here hopping on podcasts and still you know, pushing a public company, which I'm sure being a public company CEO of any size has got to be super stressful. But what gets you fired up at this point? It's the challenge. It's the challenge. I think that in a lot of different parts of my life, I'm motivated by a challenge. And I think that it's a huge challenge to make a company successful, startup successful. It, it might be even bigger challenge to go from where we are now to building an iconic technology company that'll be remembered for decades in the future. For one simple challenge is you have to be able to thrive in multiple waves of technology. So the cloud computing wave, when we started Okta, that's 11 years ago. That wave is going to continue to evolve and change. And we have to prove that we can thrive in the next wave, right? Look at what Amazon's been able to do, right? They've been able to go from retailing to Amazon Web Services. Look at what Microsoft's been able to do. They could go from the PC era to the cloud era. So I'm totally fired up and, and motivated about the challenge of making sure Okta continues to grow in the cloud, but then also thrives in the future. How many people can say they've done that? I mean, you're talking about a handful of people in the history of the world. That's the kind of thing that motivates me. And it's the team, right? It's a great group of people and getting people around me that share that view of wanting to put their mark on history is pretty motivating to me. Todd, it's an inspiring story. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Enjoyed being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, all you're doing, getting the word out for all your guests and for me as well. That's my interview with Todd. Hope you enjoyed it. I took a lot of things away from this. One was just a powerful reminder to always focus on the customer. Hearing Todd's story about having to pivot early on when he learned what the customer really needed was powerful and really resonates with my own startup journey. Needing to find your own style as CEO. I think it's a great reminder. Mark Benioff is an amazing CEO, the CEO and founder of Salesforce, but Todd's different, and Todd learned from Mark, but he he brings his own personality to his company, which you can see really comes through in everything Todd said today. And if you follow Todd on social media, you can see you know he's bringing his own style. Something I found too, leading Muckrack and the Shorty Awards, that I have my own style. I think maybe I'm more like Todd than like Mark, a little more understated, but it's great to be reminded. You can really work both ways as a leader and and kind of weave your own style into your organization. And with that too, I think Todd had some great notes on really building a culture of collaboration over rules. And I think that's more important now than ever. It's hard to have a rigid organization 
when the world's changing so quickly. So it's great to hear Todd's thoughts on empowering his team to make decisions and to get things done. It is great to be back in the podcast world. This is my third new episode after a 10-year hiatus from podcasting. As a reminder, I started this podcast back in 2005, interviewed a lot of great folks, then I had to take a decade-long break that I used to build my businesses, Muckrack and the Shorty Awards, but now I'm back and having a blast. Thanks to everybody who's been reviewing this show on iTunes or now it's Apple Podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot. They really help new people find the show. The most recent review is from Peter Kuhar, titled, The Best Startup Podcast Has Returned. Quoting Peter, Venture Voice was the first podcast about startups I listened to back in 2006. It inspired me to go the entrepreneurial route. I still remember the interviews with the founders of Yelp and Grasshopper, and even Jason Calacanis. Now, after 10 years, the podcast has returned. Thanks, Peter. Those messages really mean a lot to me and keep me inspired to do this show. I'm doing it primarily to help other entrepreneurs and keep myself fresh. It's challenging to find the time for it on the side of running my businesses, but I'm just learning so much and having a blast. So thanks to everybody for tuning in. If you have any feedback, just hit me up on social media. I'm simply at Gregory on Twitter and Instagram. Again, I signed up early simply at Gregory. Find me there and would love to uh, have a conversation with you. Until next time, I'm Greg Gallant with Venture Voice.